Welcome to episode 89 of Radio 815, the podcast dedicated to examining the work of writer-director J.J. Abrams, as well as his greater Bad Robot Universe. I'm your host for this week. My name is Marcelo Nestroza, joined as always by my fellow co-host, Matt Crandall. And on today's edition of the show, we'll be taking a look at Fringe, Season 2, Episode 1, entitled A New Day in the Old Town. Matt, can you just do me a favor? Be a better man than your father. Where we last left off was Olivia had realized she was standing smack dab in another universe. And this picks up with a man being in a car accident. He flees the scene and we see him take out this weird device, smash his face all up and, and use this device to look like the body of this man in this apartment. So it's like, a you know, shape-shifting machine that can make you look like someone else. Which, at first, I'm like, okay, this is interesting, but what's going on with Olivia? What's happening? And then we find out that the car that was in this accident is SUV-owned by Olivia Dunham, and she is not there. The car is still locked from the inside. It is almost as if she has vanished. And then we remember, oh, yeah, she was, you know, driving to a place when she traversed universes or whatever. So this is what has happened since she disappeared. Fringe team is going to investigate and they show up on the scene and we're introduced to Meghan Markle as a new character, which signifies partly the shift of the show's production from New York to Vancouver. Meghan Markle, who starred on Suits, or would go on to star on Suits for many years that shot in Toronto, is no stranger to production in Canada. So say goodbye to all of the bit players who would show up on Billions, and say hello to the supporting roster of every CW show that you've ever watched, because those are going to be our bit players going forward. She shows up and she's like, yeah, what's going on? I'm FBI agent Amy Jessup. And I'm like, motherfucker, did you order the code red? Did you order the code red? I'm like, Amy Jessup, try try and get me to distrust somebody right away. Perfect name for that. So I'm like, all right, here we go. I did like that then Walter and Peter start getting into their thing. And the best scene of this episode is where Walter is examining the car and trying to figure out why Olivia seemingly just disappeared. He closes the door to the SUV and instantaneously Olivia goes flying through the windshield because she has returned to our universe. And it's one of the coolest effects just seeing a stopped car and have somebody launch out of it. Marcelo, what are you thinking as you know, Olivia is MIA in this first 10 minutes until that explosive moment where she reappears. I am thinking, what the hell is going on here? Because I did not like the character played by the the princess, Markle. I was like, I, di- I didn't get it because to me, it felt like Olivia Dunham was being replaced by this agent. And the other thing that I didn't like about this episode is that they used her character to sort of bring the audience up to speed on what the fringe division was again they've done it how many times now matt they've done it three four times and i'm like we don't need this like like if you're watching the show at this point in season two you should already know what the goddamn show is about so what the hell 
I did not understand that. The scene where Peter and Walter are called to investigate uh, this car accident and they find out that, that one of the cars in the accident was Olivia's when Walter finally starts looking at it and he goes into the car, as you mentioned. You know, he notices that the seatbelt is buckled, the um, the airbag is, you know, deployed and he just starts playing with the car. But all of a sudden, the the car springs to life, the engine goes off and like you said, Olivia shoots to the window. I thought that scene was particularly goddamn amazing. I loved it. And I loved how uh, the director of this episode, friend of the show, Akiba Goldsmith, I love the shot where after Olivia shoots out the window, Goldsmith just shows her lying on the on the street and he just focuses in on her face. I love that shot. Yeah, I think that shot was really nice. And it is interesting that they, you know, they introduced this new character and Olivia is very sidelined for this whole first episode. So I do think that part of introducing that new character off the top is that they want us to fall for the schmuck bait where they act like Olivia is dead (laughs) and anybody. And that's what writers in TV call it where, you know, we make it look like one of our main characters is going to die, but like, They're one of our main characters, so only a schmuck would fall for it and believe that they were going to be dead. But they do everything to build that up because we introduce, you know, somebody who could be like Dunham's replacement who's interested in what's going on. And then when Dunham's back, we say, oh, she's brain dead. We have an emotional scene where, you know, Rachel finds out that she's never going to wake up and she's going to be taken off life support. And even they go so far as Peter and Broyles have like a meeting and Broyles is like, well, Fringe is over, you know, Olivia's dead and all this shit has gone sideways. So like we're being shut down. It's fine that they wanted to go that direction. It's the season two premiere. There's no way Fringe Division is going to end up shut down. There is no way in hell Olivia Dunham is dying in the first episode of season two. So part of me is like, I understand why you felt the need to do something this dynamic. And maybe if we were new to the show those would feel like greater stakes but i'm like these are all red herrings that are easily identified as something that's not actually going to have massive consequences going forward to sideline olivia that you know she's in this episode first half lying unconscious in a hospital bed second half lying groggy in a hospital bed is just such a weird choice because i want to get back into the thing that i love the best which is peter walter and olivia doing their thing and it really takes us a long time because we never fully get back to that there are some great peter walter moments i just love when he's trying to grab that body and he's like i need this body taken back to my lab and the paramedics like who is this guy is he crazy and uh they're like who's in charge jessup's like okay do whatever you want and then (laughs) jessup says to peter is your dad crazy? And he goes, oh yeah, like this guy's nuts. So I love that. And you know, Walter says some disturbing Walterisms like, I can't wait to see her face when she eats my pudding. And Peter's like, no, that's, that's disturbing. Don't, don't say things like that. And so I like those moments, but I just feel like there wasn't that many of them for the premiere to remind us why we love this show. So overall, as the second half ramps up and they realize that there is this shapeshifter on the loose. 
they add some of the intrigue because we do see him, the shapeshifter, in a very cool scene with a typewriter. He is typing on the typewriter, and he's got a mirror. And as he types on the typewriter, in the mirror reflection, he basically sees some sort of connection to what we can assume from what we know of of this world is the other side, the other universe, and it tells him, you fucked up. (laughs) Whatever you were supposed to do, you didn't do. The meeting that you were supposed to prevent still happens. So you need to fix your shit by interrogating and killing the person we sent you after, which we know to be Dunham. So I thought that that scene was awesome where we get, again, a a fringe reference to a typewriter where Walter's typewriter, which we found out was actually William Bell's typewriter, ended up being a key part of season one. And now we see this typewriter again and its connection to the all other side. Marcella, what do you think as we're watching this guy have this two-way communication with another universe? I really love the way that they chose to visualize the two-way communication between the other universe because they could have done so many things. Like, that guy could have walked in there and he could have been, like, uh, a computer from the 1980s or, like, a or like a window or something where where he touched the window and all of a sudden the reflection that he saw back wasn't the reflection of himself, but he saw, like, you know, a reflection of a blank screen. But I love the way that they did it because it was so simple and it was so elegant and strange at the same time. And I, and I like the fact that the guy who is actually, who actually has the back room with the typewriter is disabled. I'm like, Oh, cool. So these, so these bad guys, these technically, these bad guys do care about people because if they didn't care about people, why would they have somebody have this room in like their appliance store? So I'm wondering what they told this guy to to make him have their connection to their universe in his back closet. Now, I, I can't remember if we're going to get an answer to that, but I just found that very, very intriguing. On the same note, I find the technology that the shapeshifters use to switch bodies as fascinating as hell. Because the first time that he the first time that he does it, the 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 bad guy in this episode, you hinted to it earlier uh, earlier in this episode. So basically, he forces his way into an apartment. He attacks and kills a guy in the apartment. He smushes his face, and then he takes this machine and he sticks this prong thing in the mouth of the guy he killed, and the mouth you know, and his own mouth, and he just switches a button, and they start like his. You know, the machine causes his face to vibrate. And after a couple seconds, he is the guy that he just killed. I find that the functionality of the device so, so fascinating. Also, I find it really funny that in the apartment of the guy who he just killed uh, on the TV screen, they're playing an episode of The X-Files. I I don't know if you noticed that, Matt, but I really love that part. I did. And I thought like, okay, you know, game recognized game. That was like a moment where, where Fringe is like, yeah, we hear you. We know that you guys know what's up. So we are going to address it by showing that on the TV. And I thought that was a really nice moment. And as you mentioned, it is interesting that as otherworldly as Fringe gets with two universes and all this stuff, I do love that 
there is a very low tech approach to a lot of this stuff where, you know, the two way communication is through a typewriter and a mirror. The shape shifting device is literally like this analog thing that you have to put into your mouth and you smash your own face up to help make it like more malleable. So it's a super painful, painful looking process. At this point, I don't think we know if it's just that the guy feels you need to kill the other person to make this transformation happen or to just take them off the board. So we don't know. It's not explicitly said whether like you can only shapeshift to someone who is dead or if they can still be alive. So I thought that was really interesting. And that the fact that it is this long, painful process, whereas in some things, you know, there's some sort of shapeshifting device that's just like the snap of a fingers and it's it's very easy and painless. I like that this is a low tech, gritty, harsh way of of introducing that as we go. You know, with Fringe Division getting shut down, Peter's credentials are revoked. He doesn't have the access he needs to look into this. So he has to bring Markle along with him because Jessup now is the only one who has access to all this stuff, which was fine. But they do realize, all right, this shape-shifting guy is on the loose. And with this device, he can look like anyone. So it adds an air of mistrust to even stuff that we know and sets up like, hey, just so you know, as long as this device and this guy are on the loose, it's like a secret scroll watch all the time because anything can happen. And of course, the guy does try and kill Olivia. He tries to to fix his mistake. He shows up in the hospital as a nurse, attempts to kill her. It doesn't work. He gets away. So the the end of this episode is he gets away and everybody is running, trying to like stop him. So we see, you know, Peter, Jessup, Charlie in these tunnels and stuff. And what ends up happening, the oh shit moment of this premiere to really grab us, because like I said, there's a bunch of stuff that feels like red herrings or stuff that we knew wasn't going to happen. We knew Fringe Team wasn't going to get shut down. We knew Olivia wasn't going to be dead, but they don't make this all sugar-frosted cereal. There is a little bit of meat here, and the meat comes towards the end where we do see that the shapeshifter has gotten our buddy, Charlie Francis, and he shapeshifts into Charlie and gets rid of Charlie's body. Marcella, what are you thinking when... This shape-shifting son of a bitch seemingly has killed our buddy Charlie and is now taking his place. As you guys know, Charlie Francis is one of my favorite characters on the show. And I've alluded to this moment uh, before on the show. And in this episode, my favorite moments of this episode is with Charlie Francis. I mean, there's a moment earlier on in the episode where Olivia is sort of questioning her lack of focus, her lack of dexterity, right? She, she, she keeps trying to reload her gun and, and, sort of, and sort of walk through the paces of doing that. And, she's, and she, of course, is unable of doing that because she's just been in a car accident that took her from one universe to another. And I love the story that Charlie tells her to sort of calm her down or, or to sort of settle her, uh, her, uh, her nerves at the time. He says that in his second year of being uh, a cop, on the beat in New York, when answer when when answering a, dom- a domestic disturbance call, 
him and his partner go into this house where his partner is eventually killed by this woman, right? And he ends up getting shot by the same one, the same woman who kills his partner. And, and, you know, and then he basically, basically says, um, I went through a period of, I went through a period of time where I didn't know if I was going to be able to do this job again. But let me just tell you, even though you're telling me you're fine, the thing is, when somebody goes through a traumatic event, their brain says, okay, how am I going to, how am I going to get through this with as little pain as possible? Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pretend that it didn't exist. And when we do that as human beings, the first thing that we do is we, we tell everybody and we try to convince ourselves that we're fine, which is completely the opposite of what we are, right? The, the point when we start healing ourselves is when we say we're not fine and that there is something truly wrong with us. And I really love the fact that Charlie could see through that because... Peter and, and and everybody else who visited who visited Olivia during this episode really couldn't see how much she was sort of suffering. I mean, I don't know if they didn't care or if it's just something that they didn't register, but I really love the fact that Charlie was the one that noticed that about Olivia in this episode, that she was really, really suffering and that she was trying to not address it. And I love the fact that his story allowed her to address the fact that she is suffering and that she needs to let go to begin to heal. Yeah, that was great. And especially because knowing how Charlie ends up by the end of the episode, it becomes a nicer moment and re endears Charlie to us as the audience. You know, last season when he got stung by that monster and his life was in jeopardy, we did spend time with him at home with his wife. We did see his life was on the line. So we got to care more about him and as we got to know more about him and Olivia being very tight, I like that they remind us about that before pulling the rug out from under us by the end of this episode. So that was one of the better moments of the episode. And as you mentioned right off the top, when Olivia wakes up, she shouts something in Latin that we find out by the end basically translates, be a better man than your father or Greek, whatever it was. And in that, we find out that it was something that actually Peter um, was told every night by his mother. And so I thought that was interesting that we, you know, a, a bad robot show with daddy issues and stuff is not anything new. But adding this and threading this through again to remind us, like, you know, Peter's mother wanted him to be better than Walter and would remind him every night, like, try and be a better person than your father, because we know that Walter has made a lot of mistakes, and we still don't know the full extent. Every time we think, like, oh, he he's a crazy old man, he didn't do as bad things as... It was all William Bell. Then there's always something to remind us, no, back in the day, he was just as bad as this guy. So I did like that. That kind of reminds us that, in case you haven't been paying attention that that is something key, but it also comes back to sort of the, the storylines that we're going to continue to explore with the duality of these universes and still a lot more on the table in terms of that bombshell from last episode where we realized that our Peter is actually their Peter. So we still have not addressed that in a big way. Uh, did you think that the reason that they introduced Meghan Markle in this episode as another FBI agent 
Do you think that they did that to replace Charlie because they knew that they were going to sort of say goodbye to our version of Charlie? I don't know. That is an interesting question. I think that part of it is what you said earlier, which is she was the way for us to do the exposition dump about what this show is and let people know who maybe only heard about Fringe and did not catch up on the season one DVDs before this started airing that they could jump in and join the show. And she was their, our conduit to get all that exposition out. But again, if they knew that we were going to take one of these FBI agents off the board, it made sense to maybe slot in a replacement. We also do see in like a montage of everybody doing stuff, you know, she's taking a lot of notes and she has a lot of questions about what is actually going on with fringe. And by the end, Peter does give Broyles that device and Broyles in front of like a bunch of senators does something that Fringe is not going to close. But now we wonder, is Jessup going to be involved? Does she have more going on? But it seems like, you know, the Fringe division is is going to remain active probably. But I I do think that you maybe have a point where, you know, we knew that we were going to take somebody out. So let's swap somebody in. Again, it's the start of a new season, so that's usually where you introduce some of your new characters is right off the top. And we do have a lot more about her that we don't quite know. With a name like Jessup, I think that you're a lion bastard. So my antenna are up already, wondering what kind of double cross or what kind of... Why was she on the scene that day and did she make sure it was her? Is she more in the know than we know at this point, but that's something that we will have to find out as we continue on in season two. Also, you mentioned that Broyles had to deal with a, with a panel of senators in this episode. Uh, there's one little moment that I found very interesting when, when Broyles comes down from uh, the meeting, he has a quick little interaction with Nina Sharp and she kisses him and I'm like, did they go out or what's the meaning of that? Because that came out of nowhere because in season one, they had a very respectful relationship, but I didn't get the feeling that it was a romantic relationship. So very quickly here, could you just like, I mean, what did you think of that when, uh, when it happened? I mean, it was something very small, but it was something very odd. I thought, um, I actually thought they did lay a little bit of the groundwork in their secret meetings last season where they were kind of like longingly looking at each other and and like, you know, almost holding hands on a park bench while they had some secret meeting. So it didn't feel like it came out of complete left field to me. Okay, they've they've just decided we need this to be on for some reason because Broyles and Nina did have a lot of scenes together last year. It was always secret meetings that nobody else knew about. But I always felt like there was something going on there because oftentimes they are on opposing sides. So it was always weird that they would have these secret meetings where they kind of came together. And now we're seeing that the reason for that might be because there's something else there. The last thing I want to mention before we wrap up for this week is I found the subplot of Walter being obsessed with making a birthday cake for Peter's birthday and making him custard was simply fascinating. Any thoughts on that? I thought that was really interesting. And again, I think that that goes back to the thing that I said they didn't really address, which is Walter says, you loved custard and whatever as a child. And Peter's like, I never did. 
And it's because Walter is remembering his Peter, Peter from our Earth, not Peter from the alternate universe, which this one is. So this is the stolen Peter. He did not grow up loving custard and having this thing on his birthday. And Walter is not acknowledging that fact. So that is Walter lies to himself about the nature of Peter because it's easier that way. He doesn't want to think about the fact that this is a a kid that he stole from another universe. So I do think that that was a subtle way of reminding the fans who have been in this for a while of that. I think if this was your first episode, you probably wouldn't really know. You just think, why is this old man obsessed with pudding and whatever? And it, it is funny and it works in that way. But for us watching the long game, it stands as that reminder. All right, guys, on that note, I think that'll do it for this edition of Radio 815. Uh, guys, if you like anything that we do here at all and you want to reach out to us and talk to us about what you thought of this season two premiere of Fringe, there are a couple ways to do that. Uh, you can just simply uh, reach us on Twitter by using the hashtag Radio 815, or you can reach out to us on our personal Twitter, it's JJUniverse815. If you want to talk to me personally, I'm also on Twitter. I'm at CreekFanatic88. But Matt, if the good folks at home want to talk, want to reach out to you and talk to you about anything at all, what would be the best place for them to do that on? On Twitter, at Matt Crandall. Uh, just one more bit of house cleaning to do. Uh, if you guys want to catch up on old episodes of our show, but don't necessarily want to listen to our show on a podcast feed. We do have episodes of the show available on YouTube at youtube.com slash radio 815 new episodes or old episodes. I should say are uploaded there every Monday at eight fifteen Eastern standard time. So you have various ways that you can reach out to us and communicate with us if you'd like to. But uh, thank you very, very much for listening to the show this week. And until next time, as always, we'll talk back soon. Radio 815 is a Balloonhead Productions presentation in association with Killer Newt Productions.